This morning, I have the privilege of continuing a journey that we've been on for a number of weeks through the New Testament book of James. It's crazy to think, but we're actually on the tail end of that journey. Today, we actually start the final chapter um, in the book of James. So the book of James was penned by the brother, biological half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. And uh, James is writing this letter to uh, the, the church that is now scattered all over the place because of some difficult things that they had gone through. And the heart of this letter, again, James is writing and telling the church, no matter where you happen to be, no matter what you happen to be going through, you've got to continue to prove that your faith in Jesus is genuine by the way that you live. And life is going to have a way of giving you plenty of opportunities to prove the authenticity of your faith. Heaven is going to constantly give you these life opportunities to prove the authenticity of your faith. And so the book of James is almost this series of litmus test after litmus test after litmus test. And if you happen to have any curiosity or interest to know, you can measure your life against this book and get a sense of, man, is my faith proving genuine based on the tests that are laid out in this book. And today, James is going to talk to us about our stuff. I don't know if you knew this, but the stuff you own has a way of revealing something about the authenticity of your Faith. Now, it's really interesting. Every week, it seems like James is targeting a different group of people in the church. And this morning, he is going to laser focus in on rich people. Rich people. Uh, if you have a copy of the Bible, join me in James chapter 5, verse 1. James is going to talk to rich people. And the reason I know this, by the way is because it says here in verse 1, now listen, you rich people, do not ever question my understanding of the scriptures again. <laughs> uh, James starts by shouting, hey, rich people, listen up and listen now. Listen now. Now. If you're not a rich person, he's not talking to you. So you have every freedom to kind of just tune things out for a moment. But if you are rich, I'm sorry, but he is talking to you and you must listen and apparently listen now, according to James. If you're sitting near somebody who you know is rich or even just looks rich, feel free to look at them, point at them and say, he's talking to you. Um, you can feel free to tag somebody in the comment section who you know is rich and say, hey, you better listen in because James is about to talk to you. Rich people. Rich people. Um, the average household around here makes about $55,000 a year. I know, I know, some of you are like, psh, that's chump change. For me, that's called a bonus. 
For others of you, you are like, you lie. No one has that much money. If I had $55,000, I would retire on the spot. $55,000. Anyway, I I tell you that to say this. Uh, Bill Gates, (laughs) the the founder and chairman and and CEO and and owner of Microsoft and and source of much controversy in in recent days, Um, Bill Gates is going to make $55,000 in the next two and a half minutes. While we are sitting in this service, Bill Gates is going to make about $1.4 million. And if I preach a little long, we could get him to $1.5 million. Bill Gates is worth $119 billion with a B. Dollars. <laughs> Rich people. Anyway, I tell you that to say this. Um, Jeff Bezos. Um, whose salary you pay every time you order off of Amazon. Jeff Bezos is $90 billion richer than Bill Gates. What? In the next hour, Jeff Bezos is going to make $13.5 million. Um... Over the course of this past year, <laughs> during a pandemic, after, by the way, giving away about 25% of his wealth in a lawsuit to his ex-wife, Jeff Bezos managed to become the first person that we know of to cross the $200 billion mark. That guy is worth more than $200 billion. To put that in perspective, he is the 70th richest country in the world. I'm not saying he wants to. I'm just letting you know that he could afford to buy at least 125 countries in this world. How much money do you have to have so that the only people richer than you are countries? Jeff Bezos, rich people. By the way, the top three wealthiest Americans, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, (laughs) they have more money between them than the bottom 50% of the U.S. population combined. I'm telling you, these three guys have more money than 165 million people in this country if they all went in together. Whoo! Rich people. Anyway, I bring that up to say this. When we read a passage like this in the book of James, and it says, now listen, rich people, we tend to think about people like that. The Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos. What we tend to say is those rich people. James could not possibly be talking about me. Why? Because I'm not rich. And by that, we typically mean I am not as rich as, and then we'll pick someone who has more than we do. The way we tend to define rich 
is relative to someone who has more than I do. Isn't that really interesting? I always compare up and I say, well, compared to them, I'm not rich. So he must not be talking about me. Why do we tend to do that? I wonder. Did you know that if you make more than $34,000 a year, that puts you in the 1% of the richest people in the world. Did you know that about 50% of the world's population lives on less than $5.50 a day? A little bit less than it costs you to buy your venti pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks. Just for some perspective, did you know that nearly 700 million people in this world live on less than $1.90 a day? Anyway, I say that to say this. There are hundreds of millions of people in this world who read this passage of Scripture and they think about you. Rich people. I'm not talking about us, but they're definitely talking about those people sitting in a service at Mission Point. Those people watching online with their high-speed internet. Rich people. We tend to think about other people and we miss out on our... I'm just wondering, is it possible that James is talking to you? Well, I'm not as rich as those people. <laughs> and Bill Gates is like, I'm not rich. Me, I'm not as rich as Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is like, Canada has more money than I do. We'll go, that's nice, buddy, but you could buy Serbia, so stop it. Rich people. Okay. I'm not sold, but I'm considering the possibility that maybe I am rich. So tell me what James has to say to me, just in case it's true that I may qualify as... Rich. James, what would you like me to know? Now, how many of you know James um, is not always the most mushy and tender communicator? If you don't believe me, check this out. Verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Hundreds and millions of people in this world are thinking about you. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Okay, buddy. I was just starting to come to terms with the possibility that I might be rich, and now this. Hey, rich people, listen up and listen now. If you understood the holy misery that is coming your way, you would wail out loud with tears. What? 
Okay, to be fair, this would have been as shocking to James's readers in that culture as it might be to some of us reading what he has to say to rich people. Because as is true in our culture, it was also true in, in their culture, misery, no sir, mm-mm. Wealth was viewed as the key that unlocked the doors to happiness. Duh, the more you accumulate, the more you have, the more money you acquire, the happier you become. No, if you understood all of the perks and the privileges and all of the opportunities that lay ahead of you because of your increasing amounts of money, you would do a jig and you would shout for joy. That must be what James meant to say because come on, rich people are happy people. This doesn't even make sense. In this culture, it would have been viewed beyond that, that wealth was an, an evidence that God was blessing you and poverty was an evidence that somebody in your family had done messed up and now God was setting them straight misery no no the road to happiness is paved with wealth they believed it just like we believe it which is why we exert so much of our energies in getting more stuff and making more money because more money more joy. And then James shows up and turns that whole ideology on its head and says, misery awaits in the future for the wealthy. And if you understood what your future looks like, you would be weeping and you would be beating your chest and you would be wailing out loud. Whoa. When was the last time somebody said to you, watch out for that wealth, man? There's misery there. When was the last time we said that to our kids? Like, now slow down. Chasing all of this money and success. There may be misery there. Okay, okay. So you're telling me I came to church, and you're telling me that I tuned in to hear James say that Christians should not be wealthy? Well, listen, if you just be a little bit patient and keep reading, I don't know why we're all so impatient. Um, here at Mission Point. But if we keep reading, James is going to surface the heart of this warning that he issues to the rich. Verse 2, he says this. Here's the thing. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are rusty. They're corroded. And their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Ooh. I can't wait to have a conversation with James in heaven. 
if nothing else, just to ask him, like, hey, man, did you have any friends? Um, wow! Um, this is a really vivid way for James to say there is judgment in heaven coming for the wealthy. This is graphic. Whatever he's saying ought to be taken immensely seriously. That is what he's talking about when he describes fire and flesh being consumed. He's describing the judgment of the living God. But you know what I find really compelling about these couple of verses is, is the way they really t- help deepen our understanding of the definition of wealth. They surface a much clearer definition of wealth, not wealth the way the world defines it, but wealth the way James means it, wealth the way the Bible talks about it, about it. wealth the way he's using it here in this text. Wealth not as an amount of money, but as an accumulation of more. I'm telling you, I looked at this and it brought to light a definition of wealth I just had never considered before. Wealth, according to James, is the ability to keep extra. The ability to keep extra. I would say this way, and we'll put this up here on the screen. Um, If you have more of anything than you use, you're rich. If you have more of anything than you use, you are rich. To the rich, listen, who's he talking to? Anyone who has more of anything than they use. Listen, if you have the luxury of standing by your closet and deliberating on outfit choices, because you're trying to figure out what goes best with this particular pair of shoes, or because you're trying to figure out if, uh, if you've worn this outfit in the last couple of weeks, You are rich. All of these options. Is this even still in style? Wait, what's the rule about white before fall or after fall? I don't even remember. I have have nothing to wear that I haven't worn this month. You might be Rich, if you ever go into your cupboard and you have to look at the expiration date because something has been sitting around that long, you're rich. If you have a savings account, you are rich. If you have the luxury of putting money away for a rainy day or for your retirement, who's putting some money away so that when I'm old, It'll be waiting for me. 
Do you understand what kind of a luxury it is to keep that extra in the bank? If you have the luxury of getting on social media and saying a little help, please, we're not sure which series to stream next. You are rich with your streaming subscription. If you ever sit in your house and you are flipping through the channels and you can't find anything to watch. I'm just telling you, you are rich. If the words go on vacation ever come out of the mouth of anyone in your family, you are definitely rich. This has been such a hard time. We're going to get away and go into someone else's place for however long because we must lay on a beach. You are rich. If you have a spare bedroom in your house, you're rich. You have a spare room in your house that's bigger than what millions and millions and millions of people call our entire home. I'm just telling you, you are rich. James does such a great job servicing this definition of rich as the ability to keep extra. If you have more of anything than you use, you're rich. James has been talking to us the whole time. And he's saying, there is holy misery coming for the rich. But hang on. Not because you have wealth, but because you hoard wealth. Misery is coming not because you have wealth, but because you hoard it. Heaven doesn't have a problem with the fact that you have stuff. It is a problem with the fact that your stuff is going stale. Meaning you have so much extra stuff that you cannot use and it's going bad and now heaven has a problem. But you insist on keeping it, keeping all of this extra. Why? Just in case. You won't use it. You won't share it. You just keep it. And it's going bad. And it's interesting, James says this, this phrase at the end of the section we just looked at. In verse 3, he says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. What an incredible statement. He's saying, and you're doing this while time is running out. Jesus is coming back to us or we are going to go to him. And we are just storing all of this stuff that we, that, that we don't use. Really interesting picture he's painting. And by the way, if you've ever been in the unfortunate situation where, you know, maybe a parent or grandparent has passed away and you've had to funnel through all of their estate. 
It's really interesting. This is part of the picture James is painting. Time was running out. And what did they do with all of the stuff? So what are you going to do with it? No, but we can't get rid of it because it, it's, it's, James's concern is not that we have wealth, it's that we hoard the wealth. And now heaven has a problem. When you refuse to use your extra to help somebody else get to just enough. Misery is coming. When what you might use one day could be used to help someone who needs to use it right now. And you're like, "Mm mm-mm, just in case. James is saying misery is coming. Not because you have, but because you hoard. When what is rotting in your cupboard could be relieving someone's hunger right now and you refuse to do it. James says, yeah, that says something about your faith and that says something about your future. And what it says about your future is misery is coming. What's out of style in your closet is Sunday's best for someone else. But you just hold on to it. Why? Because you know I hear like it's a cycle. Like maybe five years from now, this will come back in style. Wait, so that's why you're keeping all of this stuff in your closet? Yeah. Just in case. It's not because we have stuff, but because we hoard it. And when we hoard stuff, heaven has a problem because we become an obstacle in heaven's delivery system to the people who are in need. This is what I believe Paul means in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at this. This is what he says. You will be enriched. You will be blessed. You will be resourced. Y'all will be wealthified. Y'all will be given extra In every way, why? So that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This is so powerful. God is going to make sure that you are constantly in a position where you have extra. What for? So that your extra can help somebody else have enough. When you hoard it, you become the FedEx driver who says, I'm just going to go ahead and keep these boxes in my garage. Just in case one day I need one of the things in this collection of packages. Um, A, that's against company policy. And B, you're going to get fired. And James is saying the same thing. Hoarding is against kingdom policy. And the future will invite judgment. Because you were called 
to steward heavenly resources and become a channel, a conduit through which the people in need get deliveries. And they get to say, ooh, isn't God good? Because of the way his people carried on his generosity. Hoarding is to say, no, I think I'm going to go ahead and keep this for myself in the event that one day, maybe, I might need it. Which is why James says, misery is coming. This is not the heart of God. And if you are living this way, it says something about your faith. Because this is not kingdom conduct. It says something about your future. And it's as if James is saying, in every package you keep in your garage, every extra thing you store that is intended to help somebody in need will testify against you. It's almost like you are storing evidence against yourself. He's saying all the stuff that's eroding and all the stuff that's corroding and all the stuff that that's rusting and all the stuff that's rotting, all of that stuff is testifying against you. And again, by the way, I believe this is not just applicable spiritually, it's applicable in our stories. It is amazing to think that one day my kids are going to read the story of my life when they're going through my estate. Why did dad keep all this stuff for? I don't know. I think he thought that one day Y2K would circle back um, and my kids are going to be throwing stuff away but they will be reading my story, what mattered to me, and, and what did I insist on holding onto, and what's it for even. And they'll just be chucking stuff away, the stuff that I believe was so worth holding onto. And they're like, that's useless. And I'm like, no, this is too valuable to share. And they'll know right away, like, no, it's not. This is dumb. Get rid of it. And that thing is testifying against me even in my own legacy. And the way I use stuff now is telling a story to the people around me. But most importantly, James is saying, the way you store stuff, it's, it's, it's building, in essence, a case in the heavenly realms. Not because you have wealth, but because you hoard wealth. I'm just asking you, what are you doing with your extra It'll tell something about your faith, and it'll tell you something about your future, which, by the way, is why I think it is so important for us to understand James's definition of rich, because I think the church has neglected the seriousness of this. We don't even think about it. Forget taking it seriously. We just don't even think about it. And one of the reasons is because, well, we're not rich. So this doesn't apply to us. And heaven is like, uh, there is a whole testimony of witnesses speaking about you. But if we don't understand that, we are going to exempt ourselves and just continue to keep those tubs full of extra clothes just in case we return to that weight. 
been six years, though, man. Like, maybe. Otherwise, we're going to just continue to compare ourselves to the people who have more and we'll miss the opportunities that God is giving us to bless those who have less. Because that's not talking about us. Otherwise, we're going to read passages like this, and some of us are actually going to, to just to, to pray. This is good. This is good. Lord, I pray that a rich person in our church would read this, and they would be so moved, yea, verily, to bless me with maybe a little extra something that I could store up and miss the fact that James is talking to us and heaven is looking at us and our stuff is a test of our faith and the way we choose to use it. What are you doing with the extra you have? What are you doing with your extra money? What are you doing with your extra clothes, your extra food. Followers of Jesus should be actively looking for delivery sites to carry on the generosity of our God. Because the antidote to hoarding is generosity. It's almost as if Christians, I, I think, should be playing a game of who can cross heaven's finish line with the least amount of extra. That person wins. Now, come on, tell me how countercultural is that? We are all in this rat race to accumulate more. It's almost as if the more stuff you have, then man, the better you've done. And almost like, man, the more stuff you have when you cross the finish line, the better off you are. That is not the kingdom culture. The kingdom culture is like, how much can I possibly give to the people God has called me to give to so that when I cross the finish line, it's like, I didn't have much, man. I spent it. Now, by the way, this is not a suggestion that you shouldn't have savings or you shouldn't go on vacation. Um, in fact, one of the questions that we're asking people to, to, to wrestle through as a family or to wrestle through in your small groups is, what is the balance or what is the difference between saving up and hoarding? Because there's wisdom in saving up. But what's the difference? What's the balance? So y'all get back to me um, when, you have, when you have the answer to that. But come on! The buzzer goes, the, the, you know, the clock is counted down, and the athlete steps off the floor like, man, I'm not even tired. The game is over, yeah, but, you know, I was saving a lot of energy. For what? Well, just in case we went into triple, quadruple overtime. That's why I'm not sweating. Okay, well, you're off the team. That's not how it works, nor is it how it works in the kingdom of our God, we should be looking for creative ways to be conduits. And then James says, verse 4, look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. They're testifying too. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. 
You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, which sadly is the goal. It's the dream. And he says, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not even opposing you. In this context, James would have been speaking to landowners um, who would um, have a number of employees or workers who would um, work their fields. And uh, unfortunately, there was this sad trend of these powerful, influential, wealthy people, landowners, who would just refuse to pay their workers. And so this, this, this you know, worker would mow the fields for days. And then the landowner would come and say, like, well, uh, the lines were a little crooked, so I'm not going to pay you. And the worker had no recourse. They had no influence. What were they going to do? Nothing. But sir, sir, what? And that was not just devastating for these workers. For many of them, it was deadly because they didn't have extra. They were just trying to work for enough. And when this powerful, influential, you know, rich person decided, I am going to gain a little extra, squeeze a little more out of you so I can have excess while you suffer. There was nothing that person can do. And James is saying, you have to know there is a special judgment for the person who decides I'm going to figure out savvy and shrewd ways to squeeze more out of people so I can have extra. That is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is saying, how can we squeeze a little more out of our extra so that other people can have enough? And you can imagine, James would say without any question, if you're in a position as an employer, if you're in a position where, listen, pay people exactly what you said you would pay them, exactly when you said you would pay them. Do not live looking for loopholes so you can somehow get a, a, a little bit ahead at the expense of someone else. Never exploit, never extort. Heaven is always taking notes. I love this graphic picture. When you do that, the cries are going up to heaven. When you become litigious, like I'm going to sue this person or threaten to sue this person so I can get a little more out of them, so I can have a little extra. James is saying, ooh, the cries are reaching up to the heavens. Never use your position of power to rip somebody off. I love the beautiful insinuation. Rather, use your position. Use your stuff. Use your, your, your influence to figure out the most savvy and creative ways to be generous. This is what the church should look like. Man, I, somebody shared the saddest article with me last week. Um, it was about the Salvation Army in Allen County, which is just up the road from us. Oh, man. Um, the Salvation Army helps about 2,000 kids in need just around the holiday season. And they were writing in this um, article that they're experiencing quite a dip in the number of kids who are being helped by those in positions with enough extra to help the kids. And the reason was because they would call the Salvation Army and say, 
I'm sorry, we cannot help that kid unless we know that they voted for our candidate. Oh, it's the kid's fault somehow, right? It's like, wait, you should be finding excuses to help, not reasons not to. And the other thing they're saying is we're seeing a drop because people will actually send names of kids back and they'll say we will only help kids who have more traditional sounding names. The kinds of names that we can pronounce. What? No. The church ought to be figuring out what is the most savvy way that we can leverage the extra we have to help others have enough. The question of this passage is how are you leveraging your extra to help other people have enough? It's not difficult, but it just requires some level of intentionality. And if you're anything like me, you have to pause and say, I just don't think much about it. I just don't think about it much, which, by the way, is one of the number one ways you can know you're rich. I just don't even think much about it. People in need and stuff, and I just don't think much about it. The question is, how are you leveraging it? It it does take incredible intentionality to observe the needs around me. I'm just asking, is there anything you are storing that you can give away instead of holding on to it until it's useless? And for most of us, we already have stuff that we know, yeah, I held on it because I thought that I would be able to use it for, but it's useless. Is there anything you have extra that somebody could use? Christmas season, by the way, is a great time to be thinking about stuff like this. Um, Pray for me because I'm about to embarrass my wife and I can't tell you how this is going to go at home. Um, My wife has something that the Sinfukwe household affectionately refers to as a side hustle. Um, I bet you my kids are smiling. uh, she she meet, meets suspect individuals in parking lots. So let me let me backtrack a little bit. Um, she has decided over the last year or so to start going through our home and gathering a bunch of stuff that we just don't use. It just sits around, and then she sells it on buy sell trade which is what leads her to these shady meetings in parking lots. I'm sure people think she's a drug dealer. Um, This side hustle. I have been blown away by how much people will pay for stuff that we're like, that's so out of style. We don't use that anymore. Well, they paid this for what? That thing, ugly thing that's been sitting there for like two years. Yeah, they paid for it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And the funnest part of the whole thing is when it's all said and done, she's made hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And then she'll take every single penny and she'll ship it off to some of our mission partners in a country that Jeff Bezos could buy. Side hustle. And the other day she shared a note that she got from these folks in this country just telling her what it meant to them. And I'm like... This is, I think, how we should be living. I could be wrong. 
Kids, give her all your stuff. It shall be sold. Uh, Lori Whitman, who was sitting in the last service, I still remember the first time she shared this crazy idea that is now this beautiful reality. She, she's, she's collected a, a bunch of wedding dresses that people have sitting around because they're not using them on a regular basis. Um, and she's gathered these wedding dresses and she has given them to a bunch of ladies in Haiti because that was a key obstacle keeping them from getting married. And then she takes these trips and they go to Haiti and they conduct these mass weddings with these dresses that were just sitting around. That thing that was just sitting around enabled some lady in that country that Jeff Bezos could buy to have a wedding. The church ought to be thinking about the most savvy ways we can use extra and leverage and repurpose it. There was a couple sitting in, in the service before that sent an email to us this past week saying, we have an extra car. Yeah, we've actually worked on it and we fixed it because we don't want that thing rusting on our watch. An extra car? Yes. And we want to know, is there anyone you know who could use it? Which, by the way, as far as I know, we don't have an answer to that question yet. So if you know, you can email us, right? But I'm like, that right there, because some of you have extra stuff, that lawnmower that's extra that's been sitting in your garage for years now. Well, I'm, I'm going to give it to my grandkids. You're 32 years old, man. Grandkids. Your grandkids won't be mowing. There'll be an app for that, right? But storing and storing and storing. Man, I'll tell you, I read this passage, and my wife can testify and hold me accountable, and y'all can ask me about this, but over this Thanksgiving break, I'm going to go through my stuff. I'm like, I have so much. There are clothes in my closet, shoes in my closet that have dust on them. How does that happen? How does that happen? How? There are people in my native country who don't have clothes and I have clothes with dust on them just because I'm bored of them. They're out. I am going to go through my stuff and I am going to help our, my wife for the biggest buy, sell, trade, side hustle that there's ever been. I don't know, but I've got to think creatively about how to leverage this stuff and be a blessing because that's what the kingdom culture ought to be. And I've just not paid attention to it because I'm too comfortable, too safe. Things are fine for me. I'm just wondering what extra you could leverage if you were intentional enough to think about it. Come on, go through your stuff. At a minimum, just donate it somewhere. Um, Emily's going to come out in a second and give you all some ideas for ways that you can do this as we wrap so we can make this part of our personal culture. And we want to live this way, by the way, not because it's like, oh, we're better people than other people. No, we want to live this way because, come on, isn't this us? Isn't our entire faith built on the person of Jesus Christ who happened to have a little extra holiness and he happened to have a little extra spiritual blessing and he happened to have a little extra grace and he happened to have a little extra room in heaven and we happened to be living in the deficit that sin had created and Jesus found the most creative way possible to empty himself 
and take on the form of a man so that we who had nothing can not just have enough, but have more than enough. So it makes sense that those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus would do the thing followers do, which is follow Jesus. It's what he would do. So if we are hoarding, we are nothing like Jesus. We do this because that's what's been done for us in the gospel. And the worst case scenario, y'all, is we get to the place where it's like, man, I have very little. Well, I can fall back on a promise that God will make sure that I always have enough to be able to be generous. I'll be fine. You'll be fine. The question is, will we be faithful with the extra we have? And so, God, I just pray that you would stir our hearts and give us Give us just an awakening of creative ideas of ways that we can take the extra we have and get it into the hands of those who don't have enough. May that be the story that's told of us as individuals. May that be the story that's told of us as a church. Thank you, Jesus, for your generosity to us. We live because of it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.